after marking number 179, which we'll use later in our service this evening. It's again a tremendous thing and quite a powerful blessing as well that we've been permitted to assemble on this Sunday afternoon in the very way that we now are. And I hope that we've each been such that this first day of the week, as always, will be an encouragement and will help set us on a course for faithfulness throughout this week. Tonight's lesson, as you may have noticed, will surround the topic of the power of God, maybe, seen in the particulars of an Old Testament example that we might not have immediately had come to mind. So I hope that you'll be turning to 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, and this evening we'll use that as the primary text for our study. This introductory slide will perhaps get us going by making this observation. There's no question. The power of God is seen throughout the Scriptures on almost every page. Surely, as we begin in the creation record of Genesis 1, we begin immediately to see that God speaks the universe into its existence and gives it the orderliness and the character which He intended it to have. But just as surely as that observation begins our consideration, think how many other instances throughout the Word of God detail His power, all the miracles we see, both Old and New Testament. The characteristics seen in the sun standing still in the days of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10. The instances concerning even the judge Gideon, as we see the book of, in the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7. We would certainly be remiss, it seems to be, not to also mention the resurrection of Christ. When you and I give thought to the fact, that here upon that first day of the week, Jesus our Savior came forth from that tomb and in so doing served as a powerful reminder of not only the power of God, but His promise in regard to each of us as well concerning our own resurrection on some grand and glorious day. It might well be, though, in light of all that, that we can revisit the scene in 2 Kings 4. And tonight, as we move through the lesson, I believe I'll do a little different format, at least that's the way I prepared it. As we proceed through the record, we will pause on occasion and perhaps make a comment or two and some lessons that might be of benefit to you and me tonight. With all that said, why don't we cast a spotlight at first upon Elisha's home away from home. You and I often use that phrase, if there's someone who has a home away from home... There's a place that they visit fairly regularly. It's a place that's quite comfortable, most likely, and it's a place to which they often resort, maybe for vacation, maybe for solitude, or perhaps for some other special purpose. Elisha had such a place. In the text of 2 Kings 4, the following observations begin to move us in a direction of seeing the particulars of this place. First of all, the prophets. The prophets, as you and I recognize, were amazing servants of God, true and faithful for the most part. We do remember there was one reluctant prophet named Jonah, but he was one bad apple in the bunch. By and large, you and I recall that the prophets were noteworthy and powerful individuals who, quite frankly, often risked themselves so that the message and power of God could be proclaimed. We see in them dedication we see in them commitment. We see in them a desire to please God even when it was so unpopular among the culture of that day. Examples such as that of Jeremiah, such as that of Amos, so readily come to mind. 
But beyond all of those statements, isn't it something fantastic to notice the language God used with respect to these prophets? My servants, the prophets. That's what God said about them in Jeremiah 35. My servants, the prophets. So special was the integrity to which God directed these people and their devotion concerning it that God could refer to them as my servants, the prophets. I would hope today that you and I might at least fit a similar bill wherein God could say, speaking of those loyal to Him, my servant, and put your name in the blank. Wouldn't that be a delightedly powerful truth to be able to say? With regard to the prophets... You may notice about the closing part of that slide. That then brings us to the life and times of a man named Elijah. Elijah is immediately a man stricken with boldness, motivated by the power and consistency of opposing the worship of Baal. Now the service to Baal had become a rather rampant thing among the Israelites at that time. And it was prompted, of course, by none other than the wicked woman named Jezebel and her weak husband called Ahab. And yet, as they promoted, advocated, and encouraged the service and worship of Baal, Elijah stood forth in dramatic power and in opposition. In fact, wasn't it Elijah who rather directly said, You, Ahab, have troubled Israel. He, in fact, spoke to the king directly, called him, if you please, directly to the matter of being opposed, and told him he was troubling Israel. But our lesson tonight is not about Elijah. It's rather about Elisha. It was the case that God hand-selected the successor of Elijah. It was to be a man named Elisha. And in fact, the book of 2 Kings, at least the opening few chapters, will share with us much fantastic information about him. One of the things probably that comes so readily to mind is that episode in which Naaman... You might recall at first he was reluctant to, to dip in that old Jordan River, but finally, under the wording that was brought to him through the power of Elisha and the encouragement of his servants, he finally, in fact, did it. But one more thing as you close that slide with me. Elisha was from this place called Abel-Mehola. Now, you and I may know fairly little about that place, but I did think we might at least take a note quickly about the place called Shunem because that place is going to occupy a central place in our study tonight. Shunem, again, is going to be mentioned shortly. And in fact, if you'd wish to go ahead and note briefly a map, let me call to your attention this place of Shunem. If you look at that map, again, the cities probably are sufficiently small that they are somewhat difficult to, to, to make out. But the Jezreel Valley runs right through this particular area here, and that word is Shunem. So if you can at least picture in your mind, at least roughly now where that place is located, that word is Shunem, and apparently that dot is the one that, that connects with it. And so there's the place where this person's going to live, who you and I are going to study in some detail tonight the place of Shunem. Let's go back to the previous slide. We are immediately told in 2 Kings 4, beginning in verse number 8, that there was a particular lady and her husband who lived in Shunem. And the text is interesting in that it refers to her as a great woman. Now you might pause to observe 
in reference to great woman. What is thus being asserted to us is she was a person of prominence, a person of noteworthiness. She was an individual that perhaps had a degree of wealth connected to she and her husband. That word can be used with a degree of latitude, and so surely it has to do with one or some combination of them. But beyond that, might you immediately note with me what she did. Let me read a few of the verses, and now, with this as a background, listen to this interesting record. Beginning in verse 8, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick. And it shall be, when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. And so the scene is easy to imagine, isn't it? She and her husband lived here in, in some place that Elisha often passed by as he journeyed to carry out his business as a prophet. You and I recall that the prophets often journeyed from city to city as they served justice, as they carried out judgment, and as they saw to it to deliver the message of God's oracles. Elisha, it seems, rather frequently passed by Shunem, and particularly near to the place where this woman and her husband lived. You may notice she constrained him, is what the text says. She insisted that he stop and, and eat with them, that he enjoy the meal and hospitality which she would have to offer. In fact, that might be an opportune time to pause and note our first lesson of the evening. The value of hospitality as seen in the presentation of this Shunammite woman. We've already highlighted it, but don't you find it fascinating? Here was a gentleman passing by, no long before there were days of restaurants, as you and I would know them, and long before there was a Motel 6, as you and I could easily appreciate it. And she constrained him. Maybe she had witnessed him passing on several previous occasions, and she now took the opportunity. You may note it wasn't her husband. She constrained him, insisting that he pause, that he stay, and that he eat bread with them. On the slide, I've asked you to notice that hospitality, it would seem, is frequently mentioned in the Word of God. Jesus was benefited by the hospitality shown to Him, particularly by ladies, by women, in Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. We furthermore remember that Jesus, on another occasion, in fact, it seems more than once, was such good friends with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and in Luke chapter 10, he, in fact, was enjoying a meal with those two ladies. Perhaps it is in light of all of that. Isn't it an interesting thing to observe that hospitality was something Paul frequently mentioned and saluted brethren who had shown him that in, in Romans 16. In fact, I would call to your attention verses 2 and following where Paul listed a number of individuals and called them in light of the hospitality that they had shared to him. As far as you and me today, aren't we encouraged to also at least have a mindset understanding the value that might be appreciated in this? Hebrews 13, 2, for example, reminds all of us 
of the issue that surrounds and the value connected to the matter of hospitality. In fact, it's also noted that's one of the requirements, one of the qualifications of an elder. According to 1 Timothy 3, this gentleman must be one who in fact is known in light of the extension of hospitality. But not only giving thought to that lesson, what about another one? As we move a little bit more forward in this record. Now you might pause with me and notice here, this, this woman suggested to her husband, let's build on to the house so that this prophet will have a place to stay when he passes by this area. And you may notice that she even made observation of what things that she wished to put in this little chamber. May I again invite you to note verse 10? A bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick. Now those things would certainly be quite useful to a prophet. One who would be writing perhaps messages of judgment or encouragement. One who would have a place of rest and respite. And one who would also have access to sufficient lighting. She wanted a little chamber to be built, adjoining to their house, so that this could be a place that Elisha could stay on a fairly regular basis. No wonder we made note earlier, home away from home. You might note one final thing about the language of verse 8. It there says that Elisha oft passed by this place. We know, for example, that Samuel had a circuit that he often proceeded through as he visited the various cities for judgment. It may well be that Elisha also had a circuit of cities, villages to which he attended fairly often, and maybe in passing by Shunem, that was simply the travel path to one of these places he frequently went. It is at this point, though, we might now move to the next element in this beautiful record. It would seem that they completed this building project. And verse number 11 says, It fell on a day that he came thither. The chamber's now constructed. Elisha passes by. He comes and finds this place prepared and ready. It says he turned into the chamber and lay there. So we aren't told how many days or weeks may have passed. But the chamber's done. Elisha has a place. Verses 12 and following, you have the record I've encouraged you to consider on the slide. Elisha now has the mindset of extending a note of kindness and a message of gratitude to this woman for what she had done. Obviously, there was some expense involved. Obviously, an initiative to bring about that building project. And Elisha wanted to ensure that he appreciated it and that he was willing to bestow or direct to them that which would be an appropriate kindness or payment. And so the language reads like this, beginning in verse 12, And he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken of to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. Don't you find that lovely? Elisha directly said to her, in response to the kindness and the care which you've shown, what would you wish for me to do for you? 
Now, you and I might well recall Elisha was somewhat a man of wealth. And furthermore, he had apparently access to the kings and otherwise, and he now directly asked her, Would you wish for me to speak on your behalf to the king? Perhaps some of us would have said, Well, that'd be great. I'd appreciate that. But aren't you impressed with how she reacted and what she replied? Last phrase, verse number 13, she said, I dwell among mine own people. She had no interest in pomp and circumstance. She had no interest in the baubles that might well go with a name, if you please, in notoriety. She said, I dwell among my people and I'm content here. She had no great desire, you see, for some alternate station in life. Maybe a lesson number two. Aren't you impressed with her level of contentment? And the appreciation of humility descriptive of her with that statement that she made. I know that we frequently at least reflect upon the Bible's placement concerning those kind of topics. But isn't this another place where we see it highlighted? And given the frequency with which it's mentioned, isn't it important to God? I've called to your attention several verses. In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14, that this phrase and this statement actually applies to a nation of people, not an individual. But aren't we impressed as we hear the ancient writer say, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. The first thing that ancient Israel needed to do in order to be forgiven and to have the kind of stature and prominence that they otherwise wanted, was to start by humbly approaching the God of heaven. Not simply declaring their way, but submitting to God's way. Now with that stated, look at these other examples. In in Daniel 5 verse 22, you might recall that there was a king of Persia whose name was Belshazzar. And he was directly told by the God of heaven, You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting because you have not humbled yourself. Might we pause to say that even those in places of prominence, be it governmental positions or otherwise, need to deal in such a way that they understand there's a power higher than they. And thus they should submit in every way to these matters connected to the power that's above them. A leader does a great disservice when that person promotes his or her own way despite the matters attached to the Word of God. Belshazzar, you see, lost his life. The closing verse of that chapter indicates that God brought judgment upon him because he had not humbled himself and he was replaced by another. Today, in your life and mine, may we understand the need for that kind of importance. Maybe one of the final verses of that group would be this one in Matthew 18. I'm sure we readily recall that text in which some children were brought before the Master. And Jesus directly took one of them and said, Except you become as a little child, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And the particular attribute that the Lord mentioned, humble as this little child. A degree of self, or rather not self-effacing, One who was, you see, directly appreciative, not of lifting himself up, but of understanding 
the nature of service to God in a complete and, and submitted fashion. It might well be in that light. Let's continue our record. So after this particular matter was in fact stated, what did Elisha do next to her and for her? Let me call your attention to verse number 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? She might remember, she in humility said, I just don't want you to talk to the king on my behalf. It was at that point Elisha asked his servant, well, what else should we do for her? What else may I do? Here's what Gehazi said. Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. At this point, the observation is clear, at least to Elisha. Her husband is a rather aged man. Her age isn't specified, but the point is, her husband is aged. They don't have any children. Elisha's immediate reply is this, verse 15, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. This woman had answered the call that had been made. And as she came... He said, about this time, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou hast, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at the season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. Intriguing, isn't it? Upon asking what else might be done, Observation was made that her husband was aged. And Elisha said, about this season, you're going to embrace a son. And she at first was rather hesitant. Don't lie to me, you, you, you man of God. In fact, you then quickly notice some time passes in verse 17. She conceives, and sure enough, she bore a son at the season that Elisha had said. So here now we find that the blessing has come upon this woman and her husband of this son. At this point, why don't we pause and note a lesson at the bottom of that slide. Having to do with a topic I labeled as kindness. Surely we recognize similar situations in the Bible where a particular birth took place. You and I might well recall that of Sarah. In Genesis, of course, in regard to Isaac, in Genesis chapter 17 to 21. Later on, we understand that of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. She too bore a, a, a son. And later, certainly others might well be mentioned as it would even include Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth, of course, of John the Baptist. All of that leads us to note this. What a sweet record we have of kindness bestowed by God on a situation such as this one. I've asked each of us to notice that kindness is rather highly commended in the Bible, isn't it? In fact, in Proverbs 19.22, kindness is what makes a man to be desired. Kindness is what makes a person to be a person of desire and that that others like to be with. Kindness is also displayed in commandments that directly relate to you and me. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, to borrow the wording of Ephesians 4.32. Kindness thus is commanded. And it's commanded in such a way that at least it's patterned after the marvelous wonder in forgiveness of God's forgiveness of us. 
it surely then can be a question that's personally asked. What about my kindness? And what about the attribute that others see in me? Do they perceive me as a person of kindness? Or am I perceived as a person that's standoffish? And a person who you see may well be patterned as unfriendly. If that be the case, may we give effort to move that direction so that things would be perceived somewhat differently. One other passage related to that kindness would certainly be that description of 2 Peter 1 verse 7. Isn't it true that the Christian graces are thus described to you and to me, and you and I remember them well, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, that literally means love of the brethren. And therefore, that kind of kindness is what God anticipates will be displayed and exhibited among those who are His children. This means of kindness that we saw back here certainly leads us to appreciate the element of it as far back as even then. But let's move forward in our biblical record. After the birth of the Son, what happened? May I call your attention to verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel, and it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, Well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she called him to the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away, and the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead, and laid upon his bed. 
He went in therefore and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands and stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was coming in unto them, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. That reading takes us through verse number 37. And it also also takes us back to the slide that's now before you. There came a time when the child had become older that the child went out into the field perhaps to visit or to help or to bring supplies to his father, the text doesn't say. But the child, it seems, rather quickly asserted, My head! My head! We don't know what the ailment was, but something afflicted his head. You'll notice that the father gave instructions for the child to be taken back to his mother after sitting on her lap until noon. The child died. At this point, the scene, as I just read it, then unfolds. She, that's the Shunammite woman, asked for an animal, a beast of burden, upon which she might ride and go to the man of God. Aren't you impressed? She took the body of that child, laid it upon the bed that she had prepared for Elisha, and she closed the door. And she then made this journey to find that man of God. Aren't you impressed that she knew that there was the opportunity only there for something to be done about this situation? Nowhere else needed to be consulted. Nowhere else needed to be, in fact, asking counsel. Only the man of God. And so it was. She prepared the donkey, the ass, and proceeded on the way. And she even told the driver, don't slack your driving on my account unless I ask you. There was a matter of urgency a matter of haste. And so it was in verses 22 and following that she arrived and came, and from a distance Elisha recognized her. Maybe it is at this point. You and I could recognize what occurs at the bottom of that slide. You might recall the conversation that took place. Elisha recognized that her soul was vexed, and a quick conversation pointed out what it was. Gehazi, take my staff and go put it on his head, up on his face. She would not leave Elisha. And therefore, Elisha couldn't just send Gehazi. He needed to go as well. And you may have recalled that he did. As you and I then come to verses 30 and 31, they arrived at the place. Gehazi arrived there first, went in and placed the staff upon the boy, but it did no good. The boy was not awaked. Then when Elisha arrived, he went in, stretched himself upon the lad, upon the boy. And you'll notice that the warmth came to be the case for for the boy's body, but still wasn't revived. Elisha walked to and fro. And then the text says, in verse number 34, Finally the boy sneezed seven times. I find that intriguing. He opened his eyes and he had been revived. 
He had been returned to life. I would offer you the thought that takes us back in some ways to the title I gave the lesson. An instance highlighting the power of God. Something no man could have done. Something no person could have done. Regardless of otherwise capabilities, we find a return to the life for this lad. And therefore, at the bottom of that slide, could we not at least begin with lesson four? Put yourself into the place of the woman and perhaps her husband as you reflect upon the sorrow indicative of that which they endured. This boy, we aren't told his age, but certainly a fairly young boy. He had died. We often pray for the grief of those who have found themselves in grief. Well, notice here that had befallen this Shunammite woman. She had expressed such kindness to Elisha, even preparing the chamber. And now, even though she didn't initially desire it, she'd been blessed with a son, but he died. Heartbreaking, tragic, certainly. And yet at the bottom of that slide, doesn't it remind us of sometimes the lot that might be ours? A very close loved one passes away. Maybe even an incredibly dear friend, a lifelong acquaintance, someone with whom we're extremely close, perhaps unexpectedly pass away. Perhaps due to some debilitating illness, they soon find themselves again having passed away. Maybe that reminds us about the Shunammite woman. She was able to turn, obviously, to Elisha. Who is it you and I turn to in such a, in such a situation as that? There are those who, by the way, turn away from God and perhaps blame Him and say, Why did you let this happen? Why did you bring this kind of difficulty upon me when all along it's been my effort to show kindness and faithfulness to you? That kind of situation challenges all of us, just as it did this person and just as it did so many others in the Bible, such as the person we call Job. Job lost even more than she did. But Job, in Job 1.21, the text says that Job himself was able to make this statement. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord hath given, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of assurance, even in the midst of that kind of tragedy, to respond, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet Job did it. May I offer that as an encouragement to each of us, that when those times come, just like the Shunammite woman relied upon a power higher than she, may you and I do the same. And so as we close that particular slide, it only brings us to the comments I have at the top of the next one. The confidence that she expressed in going in haste to the man of God, she apparently sensed that he could do something about this. You may recall she earlier had pointed out, I perceive that you are a prophet. She even told her husband that. She sensed he was able as a prophet to, in fact, do something about even the death of her son. Perhaps it is in that light. You realize today you and I may well suffer our trials, challenges, disappointments, difficulties, and even despairs. Doesn't change the fact that this life will one day give way to another and, oh, don't we want to be ready for the bliss and sweetness of that one. That requires faithfulness here. 
it requires unwavering commitment to the Lord here. Again, for this woman, we're able to see that she again proceeded to the man of God. For that reason, you may notice near the bottom of that slide, let's cast a spotlight on the power of God. Now, there are some oddities about the return of this boy's life. For instance, that particular thing happened, you know, many other times in the Bible. You and I remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus was raised. You and I well remember, for example, that Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. He also raised Jairus' daughter. There were other examples in the Old Testament as well of those whom God blessed to return to life, to this life. I use the word blessed. It certainly would be something to consider, to ponder the circumstances of that life beyond this one, and the issue connected with the great power of God that could restore life here. Remember, in a general way, we appreciate the Bible's teaching to go like this. As it is, is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And so in light of comments such as that one, we understand the movement through life in this one-way direction. And it is a tremendous reflection upon the power of God when we see that normal pattern interrupted as folks were brought back to life on several occasions in the Bible. Can't you imagine the reaction of some of those who knew those individuals and who knew what had been their circumstances? How that this person had passed on and now returned to life? Easy to see that one could obviously have an immediate example that there's a power higher than men who, who did this. Some of those apostles in the New Testament as they carried these things out. You may recall that Peter in particular... It is said that healing took place often, even returned to life of those who in fact were afflicted with some things in, in the life and times in which he lived. As you and I close that slide, may we summarize some of that like this. I would suspect we really shouldn't be so shocked or surprised if the God who made this universe and who made us controls the things the way the Scriptures indicate, then it would really be no challenge for him to bring that life back. You and I know well that, of course, the Godhead has the keys of death and of Hades. Revelation 1, verse 18. Any spirit that departs this body goes to that Hadean realm, and if the God of heaven, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, has the keys to that place... That means he can allow in and he could also invite to come back out. And there were several occasions when in fact that happened. In closing that slide, of course, it might well quickly allow us to close the lesson like this. So far as we've looked at the Shunammite woman and this interesting development in her life, I've summarized some of that and tried to draw it to a conclusion like this. You and I, of course, look for a grand resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was proof that He was the Son of God, Romans 1 verse 4. Our resurrection is something promised because He was resurrected. That's the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 24. 
He was the first fruits, and we will be those who follow after the dramatic pattern of His resurrection. You and I thus can rest assured in the reality of that event. It's not guesswork. It's not something that some people wonder about. It is something that shall take place. It's true we don't know when. It's true we are not told the date and the time, but we do know that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, all the graves will be opened. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus Himself said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. The Lord Himself said, All the graves will be opened and everyone will come forth. That thus includes all of us, and so we should endeavor to prepare so that we can participate in the resurrection and the life. Let's close this lesson with a conclusion page like this. We have seen the power of God manifested in the interesting events connected to a Shunammite woman who lived again in Shunam. The kindness that she showed, the humility and the matter of self-effacedness that described her points out to us that the blessing of the power of God seen in the return of that Son should be a reminder to all of us. God is powerful. There is no thought that hath been withholden from thee, Job 42.2. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 19.26, I know that God is able to do anything that's consistent with His will. Maybe it is in that light tonight. You and I, in the examination of our life, may have found some things that need to be changed. That kind of change is simply called repentance. If you tonight, as, a child, as one who is not a child of God, you recognize the need to be one and you'd like to become one, it's only the power of the Master that can do this. Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, make confession of His name and be baptized. If you have known a way of life connected to the power of God, understanding even the promise and reality of a grand resurrection, but maybe you have slid from that faithfulness. You've allowed other things to captivate your thinking and move you in a direction of unfaithfulness. Tonight, you could come back to your first love. You could appreciate the power of God manifested in what you once had known, and you could again appreciate. Tonight, if you would repent of those sins and make confession of them, God has promised to forgive you. And tonight, if we could help in some way, we'd be honored to do it, and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.